0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: It's a hard thing to figure out who you are and what you want to do. I've just watched my like, my husband's been going through it, too. He is a restaurateur, and he's been in restaurants all his adult life as a front-of-the-house person, a manager, um, a general, like a general manager. He's opened some of the most prestigious restaurants in the world, like 11 Madison Park. And he has found that everybody wants him to keep doing what he's known for doing which is tough like nobody so nobody is going to come up to you and invent a job for you Mm -hmm. they're not going to come up to you and say like I know you've always done this this and this but what if you know you're an awesome cool talented person what if you did this for me instead and I paid you a ton of money that doesn't happen so I guess what I would say is that you have to be the one to come up with your ideal job
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com tapiphone tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
2: Laura, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Oh, it, the pleasure is all mine. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah. So you know you and I go way back. Um, you were one of our very first interviews in the broadcast FM days. And of course, I immediately took a liking to you because you said that one day I would own a hockey team, even though I don't think I'm going to own a hockey team anytime soon. <laughs> uh, but before we get into the work that you do, um, I want to start with a question that I've found has been very interesting and revealing. And that is, what did your parents do for a living? And how did that end up impacting the choices that you've made with your life and your career?
1: So oh, that is a great question uh, because it, there, I feel like the, the impact has been multifold um, from both their choices. So one thing about my parents and their careers is that they both had a big pivot in midlife. so my dad when when I was a baby until I was around four, was still an industrial engineer for Eastern Airlines back when it existed. As a matter of fact, he still carries his Eastern Airlines ID around in his wallet and tries to use it to get upgrades when he flies. Um, (laughs) I'm not kidding you. He shows it at the counter. He says, hello, I am a former colleague of yours. And then he presents this ID of him with like the picture of him is um, like has greasy hair and I think a trench coat. So I, I don't think he's ever gotten one upgrade from that. But so he, he was working for the airlines, and then he quit that to become a psychotherapist. Wow. Uh, when I was around <laughs> four years old. Yeah. Um, and that was quite a long slog, like a 10-year process of him writing his dissertation and all that. And he, he, he built a thriving practice in Manhattan um, as a psychotherapist. And my mom was a musicologist. She had a, a PhD in music still does, and she was working in the recording industry. She recorded artists like Joan Baez, and um, Country, who was it, Country Joe and the Fish, I might be mixing that up, and um, they even, she was there when they turned down Bob Dylan, she was like there in the cool 60s hey Dave, of folk recording and all that, and then she took some time off um, when I was a kid, just like to be to be a mom, And still actually was still working part time, but she also pivoted and found her way, found her path in children's book publishing. And she started from the very bottom. Like she took all those tests, you know, those kind of um, personality assessment tests and, and read what color is your parachute and did all that stuff for a while and found that she loved kids, children's books. And she got into that field. Um, by way of like internships in her forties, I believe it didn 't really occur to me when I was a kid how brave that was like to to go back to work at square one and work for people much mu- much younger than you as their interns and then as their assistant and all that so you know the the, the pivot on both sides has always informed my choices because I I feel like I always knew that whatever I did, it didn't have to be for life. Uh Like I, I could make up my mind for now. And then if that didn't work out, I could choose something different later. And, and I've always kind of felt like, well, my parents pivoted in their mid forties. So I have till then to figure out what I want to, what I really want to do. Um, and I and I think I kind of did, but also my just my dad being a shrink uh, affected me in all kinds of all kinds of personal <laughs> oh, levels. Th- that, that was, I was
2: going to let that go.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for one thing, um, I don't like to share feelings because he would just try to extract them out of me. Uh-huh. And so I hate I like I hate the language of emotion. I hate the question, "How does that make you feel?" We would go to a movie. We would go to see like. Um, I don't know police academy, and he'd say, "How do you like the movie?" And I'd say, "I liked it. It was funny." And he'd say, "But how did it make you feel?" And then I would just like run away. <laughs> so <laughs> I'd just tell him to shove it. So um, yeah, I'm. A, <laughs> I think that might have turned me into a sort of somewhat guarded person.
6: Uh-huh.
1: I, I'm not. I'm not super mushy. I don't. Like he, I, my dad cries at everything. He's 85 and he still just bursts into tears at the drop of a hat. All you have to say is uh, Jew. I mean, he's a Jew and he will think of the Holocaust and then he'll start weeping. Um, or he will think, uh, you know, if I say nanny, he'll think of when his when his uh, nanny was sent away when he was four years old and he'll start weeping. Or he'll just weep for something happy. But um, so anyway. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not a touchy feely, weepy person. Uh Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's, that's how their career choices affected me on the whole. It was their, their ability to just go with something new, drop it all and go with something new.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So for anybody who's in a moment in their life where they feel, uh, trapped or, or mid career and they're wanting to make some sort of radical pivot, um, from having watched your parents, what would you tell them?
1: I would <laughs> I I don't know if watch having watched my parents would tell me how to tell them how to do it. Yeah. Because I, I think that it is it's a hard thing to figure out who you are and what you want to do. I've just watched my like my husband's been going through it too. He is a restaurateur and he's been in restaurants all his adult life as a front of the house person, a manager, um, a general, like a general manager. He's opened some of the most prestigious restaurants in the world, like 11 Madison Park. And he has found that everybody wants him to keep doing what he's known for doing which is tough, like nobody, so nobody is going to come up to you and invent a job for you. Mm -hmm. They're not going to come up to you and say, like, I know you've always done this, this, and this, but what if, you know, you're an awesome, cool, talented person, what if you did this for me instead, and I paid you a ton of money? That doesn't happen. So I guess what I would say is that you have to be the one to come up with your ideal job. And you do it by trying a whole bunch of different things. You've got to you. You have to be willing to either start at the bottom or start small or dabble and risk trying things that you might end up dropping uh-huh. and yep. risk having to tell people who ask, like, "How'd that thing work out?" Um, that it didn't.
6: Yeah,
1: which is which is embarrassing for people. Right. Oh, yeah. Most of us, most of us really. Like when we're excited about something, we tell everybody we're doing it. We're like, hey, I'm doing this new thing. I'm really excited about it. I'm taking this course. You know, I am going to learn how to be a a speed car racer. Um, You know, I'm going to, I'm going back to school and I'm going to learn how to teach. Or I am starting a jewelry business. And then it turns out maybe that that's not what we wanted to do. You don't know until you do it. Mm -hmm. And people are like, hey, how'd how'd your jewelry business work out how's it going have you sold any earrings and you have to say eh, turned out I don't love making jewelry I don't like selling jewelry and it's really embarrassing so I think that you have to be willing to go through that embarrassment and try a bunch of things and maybe you tell people about you know maybe you tell everybody that you're doing it or maybe you keep it to yourself but I think I think that that is um, that is essential that you know and feel okay with the idea that you might drop it and move on to something else.
2: Hmm. So I'm curious: Did uh, your mom teach you anything about uh, commitment to craft and uh, you know, working artists and how they they really are, are able to create at the level that they do, having been so close to musicians?
1: Hmm. It's funny. Not really. She didn't. She didn't talk about it. What my mom did do and does do is love music. And throughout her whole life, whatever she's doing in her career, she's always played music in some way or another. Like she, she used to play the banjo. She had a couple of, I think she still owns a banjo or two and might pick it up sometimes, but she was pretty dedicated to it for a while and would take banjo lessons and practice the banjo. Um, And doesn't really play anymore but now she is in a chorus made up of uh alums of and and parents of my school which uh, which she's both uh, my high school and she's been in that for years and years and years and she is turning 80 this year and she goes to her chorus practice every single week she's probably one of the most dedicated members of that chorus and this year and last year they sang at lincoln center And, um, with, uh, like they, they backed up a quartet of folk singers and, um, it was a big deal. Like it was a big deal to go to Lincoln center and see my mom get on stage and sing with all these people that she practices with every week. And so I'm pretty inspired and, and at this point, um, at her age, awestruck by how committed she is to doing something that she likes. It's not her, you know, if somebody said, what's your passion? I don't know if she'd name that.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: She would probably say her kids. Um, if, and if somebody said, what's your career? She'd say, I'm in children's book publishing. It's not about music anymore. She just likes it. And so that kind of dedication to something that you like or love mm-hmm. is, to me, really inspiring and, I'd say, es- essential,
5: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in.
2: Yeah, I, I, I think it, it absolutely is essential. It's funny because, you know, one of the things that I was uh, sort of writing about as I was wrapping up the manuscript for, for my book is suddenly I was like, wow, I'm like, I'm done writing books for a little while. And like now there's this void in my life that has been left by this thing that has consumed me for the better part of two or three years. And I actually found myself picking up a guitar. And, you know, one of my, my friends, our content strategist said, he said, here's the deal. You basically create this portfolio of meaning in your life because then no one thing is going to determine your identity identity and self-worth because you have all these other things that actually make up your life.
1: Wow. I love that portfolio of meaning. It's so good. I, I wish I'd come up with that. I'm a little jealous.
2: <laughs> well, trust me, I'm sure you've come up with much more clever things that I have. Uh, so I think that makes a perfect transition to what I want to talk about. I'm curious how uh, you've ended up doing the work that you do. Can you walk us through sort of the trajectory of your career and how you've ended up here?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, it's all pretty... It's all pretty accidental and driven always by the, by my stubbornness, my stubborn refusal to do things the way you're supposed to. So when I was just out of college, I think what you're supposed to do is start applying for jobs right away, like career jobs. And I, and you're supposed to move out of your parents' house and go live independently. I stayed at home. I slept late, I went to the gym a lot, and I applied for bartending jobs, because I just saw all the cash that those people were making, and I went, to, I went out to bars a lot, I was not a drinker, but I went out to bars a lot, and looking, being a bartender looked like the most fun thing you could possibly be, it's like, oh, you get to meet people, and you have all these dollar bills coming at you, and it looked really exciting, so... Um, I applied for bartending jobs. I, mean, I went to the Columbia School of Bartending, which is a total joke. It's just a like a reason to to drink. Um, and, I yeah, I went out pounding the pavement with my resume of nothing except Columbia Bartending School Certificate and somehow got a, a job bartending. And I was terrible at it, and I got fired. And then I got another job bartending, and I was terrible at it, and I got far- fired. And... I knew all this time, I knew that I wanted to do something with writing, but none of those, none of the paths looked good to me because if you wrote books, I thought that means that you have to sit at home all day in like in an attic, um, in your pajamas or wearing a beret or something and typing things out. And, um, ripping the paper out of a typewriter and crumpling it and putting it in the garbage can and then setting fire to it and weeping and drinking.
6: (laughs) I wish that was my (laughs) book
2: writing process. That sounds more enjoyable than mine.
1: Well, there are no typewriters anymore, so (laughs) we could cross that out. Um, and I thought if you, like if you write for a TV show, that could be kind of fun, but it means you have to show up at work every day and, um, and you have to move to L.A., I figured, and it, that, that just seems hard, and you have to write a script to get in there. And all of the options just seem too hard, either lonely or hard. And then um, one day, a friend called me from, she was, she was working for a friend of her, like a friend of her family's, named Lisa Bernbach who had written a book, you may be too young to know this, but it was a book called The Preppy Handbook. And it was a huge hit in the early 80s, like a big bestseller. And she was really famous for it. And now she was working on a guide to colleges, like, you know, a big handbook where you can compare compare different colleges and with her spin on it. And my friend said, I'm working for Lisa on this college guide and fact checking for her. And I'm just calling schools and seeing if her info is accurate. Do you want to come in and help? She needs more people. And um, this was at 11am. I was still in bed. And I was like, fine, this may be one ch- like one chance to get paid for something that's not waiting tables or bartending. So I went in and started that day. And it was really fun. And I loved working for Lisa, and I saw what the life of a writer could be, and it could be collaborative and fun, and it didn't have to mean writing long, sloggy things, like she wrote these books that were little bits of things, um, little bits of funny things. And I, I thought that seemed fun. And I loved calling the colleges and getting to ask questions like, is it true that you are the number one party school? Like, can I talk to a student there and ask about the parties? and um so Lisa that worked out for a couple of months and then we were done and then Lisa my boss got hired by Spy Magazine and Spy was like this hip cool downtown satirical publication um it has sort of I I would say it is now like its DNA is now most in New York magazine. Um, but it was like, it was in its heyday at this time. And Lisa became a deputy editor there and said, maybe I can get you an internship. And she did. And this was a really hard internship to get. Um, everybody there was from Harvard and serious. They like the interns were serious writers and, um, so I spent six months there as an intern and I was kind of a terrible intern because you were supposed <laughs> to be pitching, you were supposed to be pitching ideas all the time uh-huh. while also, you know, that our, our daily duties were like Xeroxing the gossip pack. This was before, before internet, mind you. So... We would take like every gossip page of every newspaper, like the post page six, et cetera, et cetera, all the, all the gossip items and Xerox them, um, in one big packet every day and hand it out to all the, all the editors. And then another of my duties was to take one, one editor's free books that he got, like he got these piles and piles of free books sent to him to review And he would give them to me in a carton and make me take them back to the strand, which is the used bookstore on 12th street and, um, and get cash for them and bring it back to him. So those were, those were the duties I could perform pitching ideas. I was just terrible at, I just didn't, I couldn't think of anything, which was really disappointing to me. And I think to the people who hired me, but the people, someone on the ad side, like people liked me there. And someone on the ad side said, why don't, when your internship's up, why don't you come over and work for us? And I said, great. Cause I wanted to stay. I didn't want to leave. Like I, like all my friends were there now and there were great parties and everything. So I went to the ad side and they gave me an assignment to write an advertorial for doers. So do you know what an advertorial is?
2: Kind of. Um, Is it like a combination of an advertisement and an editorial in one?
1: Exactly. So it's like when you're flipping through a magazine, it's a and you come across an article and you're like, oh, this looks good, but it looks a little weird. It doesn't look like the magazine. Exactly. Um, That's usually an advertorial. It's like a a piece of content. It's branded content, basically. Uh It's a it's a piece of the magazine that's actually an ad. But it kind of looks like it's part of the magazine, so I got to write one for for doers scotch and so it was like this whole quiz, "Do you party like your uncle marty and um it was it was kind of an assessment quiz to see if you were like just a big loser at parties and or a, like a stiff old uncle, and if so, you needed some doers and everybody loved how that came out and i still I didn't realize I still have it my like bless my mom, she saves everything and I've got a whole or just doesn't clean out my old drawers. And I I found a big spiral notebook, not a spiral notebook, a big binder of all my old work, like put into plastic. I'm so happy I saved it. I'm like, Oh, that was good stuff. So it turned out I could write copy. Like I, I just didn't know. I didn't know what copy was until then. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I, stuck around there and wrote ad copy for them and then um, segued over to New York magazine for a little while and wrote copy there. It wasn't a great fit for me there. It was very, it was really kind of corporate and I was like 24 years old wearing crop tops in the office and um, (laughs) low jeans and like, you're not supposed to walk around the office showing your midriff and it wasn't even that flat a midriff, but it was just like, I'm not a corporate person. So I did everything I could to rebel and I'd show up late and my boss would always leave a message for me right at 9am, like saying, you know, Hey, Laura, I'm here. I've tried to get in touch with you, but I see you're not at your desk yet. Please let me know when you get in. And, um, I felt like I was always busted for something. So that job didn't last very long. (laughs) (laughs) That was a, a good, a good six months. And, um, I would say that is probably the longest I've spent in a corporate job um, where I'm supposed to sh- be there from nine to six. <laughs> like, spy was a little looser. I was able to come in there at like 12 p.m. And so, yeah, six months is the longest I've spent in, uh, in a full-time corporate job. And uh, after that, I, well, I'm, I had a friend from Spy Magazine who was working in promos at VH1. And like he had just gotten this cool job and was telling us about it. I was like, what do you mean promos? What are those? And he said, well, they're the commercials, like, you know, the little spots in between shows that tell you to watch the shows. Like basically, I watch a bunch of TV and then write funny things about it and it goes on the air. And I was like, I have to have that job. Like, how do I get that job? That's all I've ever wanted to do was watch TV and write little things, if anything, uh-huh. and get paid for it. And he hooked me up with a um with the head of promos at VH1. And I like usually they'll say show us your reel. And I didn't have a single spot to show. But what I one thing that I had been doing um in between these in between these magazine jobs, is working as uh, sort of a ringer on my friend's um, online bulletin board. And I'm sure most of your listeners are so too young to know what a bulletin board is, <laughs> but it's basically it was like in the '90s when these internets started up, the internet startups um, came to be. They they had what I guess is basically a forum. It's just a forum like like Facebook is now, I guess. And, you know, you'd post something and then somebody would post a comment on it and et cetera, and it would turn into a thread. It was just a a very primitive form of it. And so a friend from Spy had hired me to write um, on his bulletin board, like pretending I'm just a user and make it look like a really lively bulletin board where they're like hot you know, got conversations going on all day, so I and I was able, to, I was allowed to write about anything I wanted. So I would write about um, the latest episode of Nine Hundred Two One Zero and the latest episode of Melrose Place, and oh my god, I can't believe Dylan's doing drugs again. This is so exciting, and um, you know, intervention time for Dylan. That was like my favorite story arc, and I'd write about it all the time. <laughs> so that must have lasted you
2: the entire nine years of the series. <laughs>
1: I think that's true. No, his drug arc was not that long. I wish it had been, but my favorite (laughs) episode was when Mackenzie Phillips from one day at a time came in and staged the intervention. And then she ended up on celebrity rehab years later. So anyway, (laughs) (laughs) so I had written a bunch of stuff about that and had conversations online about that. And so when I went to meet with this head of promos at VH1, I was like, what do I have to show her? And I printed out all these conversations, all my comments about Melrose Place and 90210. And she liked them and said, okay, you can write a promo. And that's where I got my first TV writing job. And that turned into into more jobs. And I, I ended up getting work at Nickelodeon. And then my holy grail of promo companies, Nick at Night. Because um, they were doing the best, coolest, edgiest stuff on t v and I was so excited to get to write for them and I stuck with them, I stayed with them, and um their spin off network t v land for many years so that was my that was my t v career um and when I was heavily in it, and it 's still going on, but when I was like really um like I'd say mired in it and a little bit in a rut. I and not knowing what was next for me. uh, I met my friend, my now good friend and partner, Marie Forleo at crunch. We were both in the same hip hop class and she was just this chick. I might've told you the story before on air. She was just this, this chick in the front of the class who had the, most slamming body and perfect hair and the best moves. And she hit every move and she was always like always chosen to be in the front when we split up the class and like did it and, and showed each other, um, our, our moves. And I could not stand her. (laughs) Uh, She doesn't really even sweat maybe just a little bit of a, an adorable, like sweat splotch on the top of her shirt. Uh, but she, she was just so full of enthusiasm and like, yay, and um, super good at it. that I was just like, like, give me a break. Um, and then I started talking to her one day and discovered to my great disappointment that she was really nice and very likable. I was hoping she was a biatch, Um, but you know I, you know I really liked her. And my husband at the time was opening a restaurant called Lever House and looking for bartenders. And she told me that she bartended. And I said, "Do you want another bartending gig?" And she was like, "Yeah, I'm always looking for more work," Um, because she really was. She would. This girl would take any work. She was working day and night, and like was able to juggle multiple bartending jobs. And I knew she was also doing some weird life coaching thing on the side. So she went and got a job at my husband's place, leave her house. And, um, and we got to know each other there. I would come in, sit at the bar and talk to her. And we would also walk home from hip hop together. And she started teaching hip hop and we became pretty good friends. Um, and I guess she fell out of touch for a couple of years and then got back in touch in around 2008. And um, a thing to know about Marie is that she's got this weird, this crazy witchy sense. Like she always knows when you're up to something. She will always bust you if you're like not showing up for, you know, when we were, when I was in her mastermind, she would just call me out. She was like, are you planning to skip um, the first night of blah, blah, blah? Like, are you planning to skip the movement class. I was like, how did you know that? She's like, I could just tell. So her witchy senses somehow compelled her to call me up in 2008, um, out of the blue when I was feeling like I was in a total rut. Like I had already, I'd gotten married the year before. Um, the excitement of getting married, like not of get not of being married, but the excitement of planning a wedding was over. I was feeling a little stuck in my career. I was feeling very complacent. Like, am I going to keep writing promos for the rest of my life? Is that it? Am I going to do something bigger? What is my next thing? I Like, do I write a screenplay? Do I write a teleplay? Um, what else can I do? And so she showed up out of the blue and was like, you know, what are you up to these days? Do you want to get together? And so we we reconnected and she was like on fire in her career she was really building her life coaching practice and she had this website that i thought was so pro looking back at it it's like oh my god it was like so 2008 but um back then it was really impressive to me like she had like she had a video that started playing when you brought up the website she had a like this thing i didn't know it was called an opt-in but she had an opt-in that was collecting names she had a huge list building up and um and for all I knew, like, she had been collecting names on a legal yellow pad in our hip-hop class every week, back, like, years before when I knew her. She had been coming in and saying, hey, like, I'm not only a hip-hop instructor, I'm also a life coach, If um, and I have a newsletter. If you want to sign up for my newsletter, you know, put your name down here, and people would actually sign up, because back then everybody actually wanted a newsletter. So <laughs> she... <laughs> So she had been building names, building a list for a while. And so now in 2008, she had this like really pro website and, and sure, her book was being published by a real publisher. Uh, she, she had a book called make every man want you that she had written as, as an ebook and now it was getting published. And so she was doing all this cool stuff and I just wanted to be connected with her. I didn't, you know, I just, I just liked being friends with her and I thought maybe it would give me some ideas. And so um, I started spending more time with her, and she had a this online course that she was starting. Um, she started a thing called Rich, Happy, and Hot, which sounds so cheesy now, and she knows it. And she like she was like, this brand no, no longer sounds right for me a couple of years ago. But back then, I was like, wow, how did you come up with a name like that? Rich, Happy, and Hot. That's everything I want. And um, And I... Even though she was my friend and it seemed weird, I joined her online mastery course and she got to know me professionally because I started giving copy advice to people in that um, in her in her forum. People would people were starting businesses. It was kind of a business course, kind of a life course all things mixed together and people would put their copy up in the forum and I would comment on it and help them with it. Even though I wasn't really well-versed in online copy. It's like copy is copy to me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, she noticed that and also knew that I'd been writing promos for years. And she said, Hey, I'm doing, you know, I'm doing my first live event. Um, and I, like I'm wondering if you would ever think of speaking, like doing, speaking in front of the crowd and like giving a talk on copy. And I said, of course, sure. Like I kind of, I wanted to do something new. And I was like, that sounds like a cool thing to do. I've always kind of wanted to do some speaking. So I put together a talk called Five Secrets of Non-Sucky Copy. And her first live event was like 50 or 75 people in... A room in the Soho house. And I, I gave that talk and people started coming up to me and saying, Hey, can you help me with my website copy? Like I'm trying to write, I'm trying to build a website and I don't know what to write on it. Um, Can you help me with that? I was like, yeah, sure I can. Like I'd never done that kind of writing before, but again, copy is copy. So like, sure, why not? And I, I also knew that people tended to write terribly online. Like they just used stiff, businessy, non-conversational language. And I knew I could fix that instantly. So from that one talk, a bunch of people started asking me to help them. And I figured out what to charge them, just kind of out of the blue. Like I, I was just like, I don't know. And I, I just named a price and they paid it. Um, and so that started me working for entrepreneurs doing private sessions and I was still at this time writing promos and feeling again like a little like blah like I like this but there's got to be something more and I think the that that kind of blah started to show through and a major like six-figure contract that I had with my biggest tv client ended, uh, in 2010. Like my, my boss there or biggest client called me in for a meeting and I thought she wanted to talk about this project we were working on. I think, um, one of her, one of her colleagues said, Hey, you know, so-and-so wants to see you after the meeting. And I said, aren't you coming too? And she's like, Nope, just you. And I felt like, Oh, some, there's something weird about that. Like, why wouldn't she include the whole team? And I went in there and she was like, as you know, your contract is coming up for renewal. And I was like, "Uh uh-huh. She's like, well, we're not renewing it. And so this was six figures. This was a big, this was my bread and butter. Like anything else that I was doing at the time was just a little bit of nice pocket change. It was gravy. Um if you asked me what I did for a living, I would say I work for this client. So that was just a big, like punch in the gut and feeling of of like, okay, now I really have to figure out what I'm doing. Like I, now I, you know, I'm still a promo writer, but I don't have my, I don't know where I make my living. So I, I, because I had had these online clients and knew there were lots more of them i I put packages on my site, and people started coming and signing up and paying my full package and I got a whole lot of clients and started building a business i had I had just put up talking shrimp
6: mm-hmm.
1: um, as a as a website, and I had really built it as a showcase for my promos. And I was also, you know, Marie had said when I was building the site, like, aren't you going to, you're going to have a blog, right? And I was like, ah, a blog. I don't know. Isn't it, this is 2009. I was like, isn't it, isn't it too late to blog? She's like, no. Um, and I, <laughs> I was like, I, I laugh now. I wish I had blogged more back then. It was so not too late to blog. Mm-hmm. But so I had, I had a blog and that was bringing some people. Um, I had a really, uh, really small list, but some people were coming to it. um, So I had some audience. And I had had an opt-in because Marie had also said, what's your opt-in? And after I gave that talk, she was like, you can just package that talk you gave into an opt-in. So I had done that. And that was building me an audience. And that audience turned into clients. So talking shrimp became really, um, I mean, it, it is still the home of my promos business, but it is really the place where I serve business owners, entrepreneurs, um, anybody who needs help with words for their business or even for their life. I mean, I can help write a toast, but that is, that, that is what it has become. And that has become my career now is helping people. Like helping mostly individual people and some companies Uh with their words. So (laughs) I'm glad you told me that um, that long answers work for you, because that
6: was
1: (laughs) probably the longest answer you've ever had. I just told my whole life story.
2: Well, the, that raises numerous questions, as you might imagine. Uh, you know, the first place I want to go back to is bartending. And I, I'm very curious if there's anything you actually learned about storytelling from uh, being a bartender. Because, like, when I look back at my experience of sitting in bars, I can't imagine the thousands of things that people tell bartenders over the years. And I'm curious if, you know, you, that's had any impact on you.
1: <laughs> you know what? No, like, the. I would say my jobs at those bars have turned into stories because, um, of how bad I was and (laughs) the ridiculous, the places that I worked. I mean, I, I worked at one and I have a story about it on my blog. Uh, one bar that was called the chase at space. And it was like a disgusting down and dirty rock and roll bar where live acts performed, including one named Gigi Allen. And I'm not going to, uh, soil, your podcast um, with the details of what he used to do on stage. He's now dead. um, Combination of heroin overdose and blows to the head from his fans um, because that's (laughs) that was the kind of relationship he had with his fans. But um, it was a dirty, dirty place. And I got fired from there. I got fired from a bar that was like a that had Confederate flags up. um, And I had no reason to be there except it was the only place that would hire me. It was run by a a Texan named Bubba who, um, who was really into balloons. He was like, you know, if there's one thing, I know it's balloons. We're going to have balloons everywhere, but we're going to show those people why they came here in the first place. It's balloons. There's, you know, and, um, he was really not into giving, uh, call them buybacks. Like most bartenders make their living from, you know, a bunch of somebody buys a bunch of drinks, you buy them back a drink, you give them a free drink. And I wasn't allowed to do that. So I made lousy, lousy tips. And one day I gave a free beer to the bar back, um, who I thought, like, he's he works here, he deserves a beer. And I got fired for that. But um, I would say I did like, the people who came to my, who came to my bars, where I worked, we were not big storytellers. They were either drunks <laughs> or, um, or like kind of like, mm, post college like hoes and like ordering woo woo shots and asking for Steve Miller and wearing big clips in their hair and frosted lip gloss um, or just weirdos who would hit on me um, and like invite me to Turkish dinner even though they weren't Turkish, <laughs> and, uh, and then leave when I said no. So I did, not, I did not know how to work those jobs. I didn't know how to be a great bartender, and I guess how to flirt enough that I would got to get tips without buying them free drinks.
6: Uh-huh.
1: So I hate to disappoint. I would like to say <laughs> I heard the best I heard I heard the best stories, and you know, from all all walks of life. I did get all walks of life in there. I mean, I got a, like a doormen who would come in right after their like because I had the lunch shift, which was for losers. The doormen who would come in right after their shift ended in the morning, wait outside until we were open, and um, and come in the second we opened our gates so they could have, you know, so this guy could have his liquid his uh, liquid lunch, and people who'd come in from sex clubs where they worked and throw darts in the day. Um, and uh, yeah, a, like a lot of losers, <laughs> losers and, and weirdos and um, assortments of uh, deplorables, as they're now called, mm-hmm. but yeah, not a lot of great stories from them.
2: I'm curious, having had the experience you have, um, you know, writing promos, writing the stuff that you do with Murray, and just kind of looking at what you see, uh, you know, in the world today, especially with such a noisy world, where do people go wrong in making their words and their communication um, persuasive and impactful?
1: In several places, I would say that the first is that they don't know how to write conversationally. I think that people, when they're writing, and they are not, like they're not copy minded they haven't learned the ins and outs of copy and haven't haven't studied it and aren't really aware of the of the impact of their words it's for them it's kind of like writing their own copy is kind of like trying to get sunscreen on the middle of your back
6: mm-hmm.
1: like they can't see it they can't um seem to get and they can't seem to get their voice into writing, so they their writing comes out sounding stiff and businessy, and um, bu- businessy and or sleazy, and it doesn't sound like them at all. So that's the number one mistake is not knowing how to be conversational, not knowing how to get your words down the way you say them. I like to think of it as copy talking, not copy writing. Mm-hmm. So people, people think writing and they either put on their imaginary beret or their like, working girl shoulder pads jacket and, and imaginary briefcase and start writing like that. Um, so that's, I'd say, mistake number one. Mistake number two is that they still they're writing with, they wrap their writing in what I like to call verbal bubble wrap. So they have this precious message that they want to get out, and they cushion it in so much jargon and blotty blah and lead up that you never get to the message itself. Like one example I like to give is they, they will say things on their about page. Like, um, I have always believed deep in my deepest heart of hearts, the deep seated belief that I learned when I was a little girl, which has <laughs> now, which has now become the driving mission that compels me to empower others which is the undeniable truth that all women deserve to be beautiful deserve to feel beautiful and you could just shorten that to all women deserve to feel beautiful
6: Uh
1: but it's just wrapped in all this gobbledygook that you never get to that you never get to the What's inside all the bubble wrap because your eyes glaze over reading all that all that bland cushioning mm-hmm. so that's just poor use of real estate, basically, like the the beginnings of your sentences, the beginnings of your paragraph are where you need to pull people in boom right away with a powerful word, a powerful phrase, and people waste those completely yeah um so, and and then the other is just failure to use what I think is the most important thing in writing, which is detail, Mm
6: -hmm.
1: specifics. I'd say specifics are everything. They're, they're what grab our eye, um, real concrete nouns and powerful verbs. I I can give you an example because somebody just sent me something. Um, she was thanking me for the course that I have with my friend Marie, the copy cure. And and um, also a mini course that she found on my site. And she said that it, she showed me the before and after that she created. So the before she's in finance and the before was um, this is on her services page. Reading it now. Six out of 10 people are losing sleep over at least one financial issue. According to last year's credit survey. of women are losing sleep worrying about their finances. My goal is to help you be a part of the other 32%. A financial plan can help you stop worrying and wondering about your money situation. I want you to feel confident and at ease when you think about your finances. So it's like statistics, statistics, like business, business, and then vague promises, right? And she changed it to this. Imagine knowing you're making the right decisions with your money. You're saving enough so you won't need to move in with your in-laws if you lose your job. You're investing correctly so you won't need to be a greeter at Walmart when you're 85. You know how much you can donate to Planned Parenthood when Trump makes his next catastrophic move. (laughs) A financial plan can give you this clarity. You'll know you're making the right decisions with your money now and for the future. So which one... Like, which one do you think is going to be, is going to pop when somebody lands on that page?
2: Definitely the second one. Right? Yeah.
1: And it is going to, it's going to weed out people she doesn't want, mm-hmm. which clearly are Trump lovers. Um, She, we, we know where she stands on that. And it's going to, it's going to attract the people who are like, yeah, um, I'm I want to donate to Planned Parenthood. And it has these vivid details that really, I think, punch you in the gut. Like you're investing correctly, so you won't need to be a greeter at Walmart when you're 85. That's, that's most people's worst fear, although that might be a very fulfilling job for some people, like being a Walmart greeter. And there's a, 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 Re- no, a CVS greeter on my corner who seems to love it. But we don't, most of us don't want to be that. Like We want to be able to retire if we want. If we do that, we want to be doing it voluntarily because we love people who are, you know, shopping for logs for their fire. Mm-hmm. So, it's, to me, that is, that's just number one,
6: yeah. is
1: concrete detail. And, and that is what makes a business, being able to, it's what makes a business, what makes a personal brand is sharing the specific concrete details of your life. That's what makes you stand out and makes you memorable It makes people think of you when they see that thing that you always talk about loving.
2: Mm-hmm. So one of the things I'm really curious about, and I'm guessing you've been a witness to this since you have a front row seat to it. Um, you know, one of the, I, I talked about this when I, I wrote unmistakable um, and you may have seen this sketch that Dimitri Martin did where uh, they did a profile on life coaching uh, on the Johns on the daily show. Uh, I think that it was like a, a trend breakdown and basically some woman goes into a life coach and at the end of her, you know, session with life coach, uh, Dimitri Martin interviews her and he's like, Hey, have you seen a difference in your life since going to a life coach? And she's like, yeah, now I'm a life. Coach uh,
6: <laughs> and,
2: you know and the funny thing is as, as you know slapstick as that was, that pattern um, to me was always funny, and I had to use it because I kept seeing it over and over yeah. and over and over again, and i 'm guessing you have a front receipt to that and, and i 'm curious what you have to say about that because i 've heard and i 've seen you know people you know a lot of people who come out of, of b school and, and a lot of these programs. They literally seem to go out and try to replicate the very thing that somebody else has done with which basically completely you strips away whatever makes them original or interesting.
1: Uh, yep. Uh, refer, I do have a front row seat to it. And it kind of it, it breaks my heart that people go in to learning online business or hire a life coach to so that they can figure out the thing that they love doing, or make a business out of the thing they love doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- maybe the thing they love doing is, I don't know, painting, um, or say like throwing pots, and they want to, and they want to make a full living as a potter and sell their stuff. And they get a they get a life coach, or they get a business coach, or they you know take a business course, and then they see like, hey the person teaching me is making a whole lot of money than i am ever going to make doing like selling these pots um, i think i'm going to become a life coach or i'm going to become a business coach and they do it usually often before they've even made a dime selling their pots mm-hmm. like they become a they become a business coach before they've made a dime or they become a life coach before they've really uh, really actualized that dream that they went into it for, which was to make a living doing that thing that they love. And they say, well, now what I love is life coaching. Like, I think, I think that that can be a lot of crap. Mm-hmm. I am not against life coaching. I think some like life coaches who become life coaches because they're really talented at helping people change or helping people take action. Great. Great. Because that's a great talent. People are really hard to change. And it's really hard to get somebody to take new action. So if you're good at doing that, be a life coach. That is awesome. Or they become a business coach. I think I think uh, business coaches who have had success in business
6: mm-hmm.
1: um, and want to translate it to teaching people how to do that, I I applaud that if they're able to teach it well. But... It is sad to me that people actually give up on their initial dream in order to transition to into coaching before they've even like before they've actually made their thing happen.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: And then and then they usually burn out at coaching or they burn out at business coaching and end up going back to what they were doing initially. Like they go back to painting, they go back to throwing pots, they go back to. Um, massage because it's what they really wanted to do in the first place and maybe they build the business they wanted to maybe they don't but like they could have been so much further ahead if they had stuck with that and really given it a shot instead of going over to the life coach side
6: hmm
2: Yeah, it's really interesting because to me, you know, that is what causes people to get washed up in sort of a a sea of sameness. You know, you get Mm. like we get people, you know, pitches every now and then. And I I go through the website and I'm like, I'm not quite sure what you do and what it is Mm -mm. that you're going to bring. I'm not like I'm unclear. And I'm very curious, you know, what are the things that draw you in personally when you stumble up on things on the Internet? Like what kinds of things appeal to you based on, on having this perspective?
1: Real results. Yeah. When when people can offer tangible results like. For me, like my dream is to maybe um, my some of my dreams are to become more productive, to wake up earlier, to actually write a book like this is (laughs) this is something I've been promising myself for years and years and I got to get it done or else I am gonna hate i'm gonna loathe myself in january if i if I reach January without having at least started a book okay but so if I were looking for somebody who coaches in that area, if I saw over and over you know people saying, I will empower you to become um you know I will empower you to step into your greatness and <laughs> um, actualize your dreams and become the your best you. And live your best life. um, And they don't even credit Oprah. I'm like, blah, blah, blah. Everybody says that. If I see someone who says, I've helped um, 1,400 people to write the book that they've been saying they'd write for 10 years. And they wrote it in two weeks. uh, And I'll do that for you. Great. Now now you caught my attention. Mm -hmm. You offer a real result. If you have a track record and results, and they're tangible, I'm there. If if all I see are testimonials from people saying, um, you know, I I loved working with Srini. He, um, like after our hour together, I felt clear and empowered like never before. I can't wait to see what happens.
2: <laughs> okay, what oh. I would never work with that type of person. So.
1: <laughs> yeah, I hope not. But those are that that's most of the testimony that I see Yeah, is I feel so great after our hour. I can't wait to see what happens. Or I feel like the, I feel like a world of possibilities has opened up. Let's see what the future will bring. Like I'm not compelled by that. Everybody can, people can get inspired anywhere. Uh-huh. You can get inspired from listening to a podcast. You can get inspired from reading a book. Um, Like just the feeling of inspiration doesn't really, doesn't really go anywhere. So, and neither does the feeling of empowerment or the, like the feeling of passion or being self-actualized or spirituality. Hmm. I feel so spiritual now. Oh, great. (laughs) (laughs) What are you going to do with it?
2: Yeah. You're speaking my language.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And also mindfulness. The, thi- the thing is, there are some people who do want to feel things, uh-huh. and they might be attracted to that. I, I would say there-, there is a growing number of people who just want to feel something. So there's a market for that. There's a growing, <laughs> growing number of people, I guess, I guess, who want to spend the day more mindfully and feel like the most mindful person on the block. Uh-huh. Um, I don't understand that, but I think there are those people. But for me, that somebody who promises you that you're going to feel more mindful after working with them is, um, they are in the discard pile.
2: (laughs) Note to self, (laughs) let's not put that anywhere in anything that we write.
1: Mm -mm. So yeah, that's, that's what I have to say about the sea of sameness. I I could probably go on all day, but as you Uh, know, I will.
2: Well, I think that this makes a really fitting end to our conversation. Um, you know, I, like I said, I wanted to have you back because I knew there was just so much to your story that we didn't get to talk about last time. But I want to finish with uh, my final question, was how we finish all of our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. And given your background, I'm very curious to see how you'll answer this. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: I'd say having a point of view and a personal spin on everything you do. Hmm. Unique one. Yours. and And a refusal to be like everybody else.
2: Well, uh, I think that makes a, an amazing end to our conversation. Where can people learn more about you and your work?
1: At TalkingShrimp.com. Awesome. And it's spelled like it sounds, Talking <laughs> Shrimp.
2: <laughs> awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming. Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
5: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week.
2: And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
0: Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, What if you could turn that fear into creative fuel?